Happy Martin Luther King weekend. I know some people are gone for the weekend, some people are here for the weekend. And uh, we have an appropriate topic for Martin Luther King weekend. In fact, in January, we've been, we started with a, looking at our last theme of uh, increasing trust for 2018 and looking at our new theme, 2019, um, a year of living justice. So we're going to look at it again today, and then Pastor Andrew's going to give us a, a bit of more next week, and then we're heading into Leviticus. Yeah! So if you ever wonder why we sing all these ridiculous songs about the blood of Jesus, you might want to check out Leviticus. Um, so we're going to be reading, we're going to be heading into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and so I'd encourage you to read those. You can start with Leviticus, you can start with the first part of Leviticus, and um, you might want to read a little bit of Acts too, but I, I'm trying to, because um, I'm going to connect here, why would you bother with Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? I mean, some of you started reading them and never finished. I know. And some of you managed to get through them but wondered why. This is our chance to, uh, to explore that. But it's connected with our theme of living justice, and it's connected. So we'll get there. What? How does that work for what we are? I thought, I thought we were a Pentecostal church. Aren't we just trying to be like the early church? And what, what, Who cares about Leviticus? Um, so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about um, justice is a hot topic in our society and elsewhere. Um, we talked about living just and right or justiceness and righteousness. And we talked about last week, we talked about how God called Abram and us to walk in the way of Yahweh. We talked about how that was kind of like walking in God's big footsteps because God is a God of justice and righteousness. And therefore, he wants us to be like him and show other people what he's like. So our mission depends on us being like him so that people can see him. And it's kind of like that picture or the map and um, the map that God has given us of what that's like. So the Torah... The first five books of the Bible show us that. We finished Genesis and Exodus already. Um, we talked about being like dad or grandpa. And uh, that's kind of what we're trying to do. We talked about how justice and righteousness get confused in our society and by us because the original words are very close to each other. A little bit different sometimes translated in Hebrew, but the word in Greek, dikaiosune and dikaios and dikaion, are actually just translate their... The German roots, the Latin roots, we translate them sometimes righteousness, sometimes justice. So I'd encourage you sometime when you're looking at Scripture and you run across that word righteousness or righteous or whatever, substitute it with justice. Or vice versa. You see justice, substitute it with righteousness because it's the same word. Um, and we get it kind of divided in what it means. So what does the Bible mean when it says justice and righteousness? Because we want that standard of, now, we know that a lot of people have other things they measure things by, other um, things that they try to say this is what's true and what's level and what's... But we want to go by Scripture as what it is. So if you get hear other people saying things that you don't agree with, that aren't quite... Whatever. We need to follow this instead of what everybody else thinks it might mean. So what does it mean? So here's, a, here's an example of substituting 
It's the same word, dikaiosunis. So seek God's just society and justice before food, and He'll give you all you need. Sometimes to seek God, we have to trust God that He's going to provide for us if we're going to seek justice, right? Because sometimes it can be costly. So try substituting that that way. Um, so we talked about what what justice is. We talked about how in Scripture there's a lot of aspects to justice, fairness. We talked about the standard of justice. That this is God has put a standard, and in His Scripture, especially in the law, in the Torah, the first five books, God's shown us His standard of what He says justice is, what He says righteousness is. And other people have other things that sometimes may have originally come from there, but have been distorted. Um, We need to go back to the standard and figure out what it is. And then, is our conduct matching the standard? And the forensic means the court. The court decides if your conduct matched the law or not, right? You say, well, I was going 45. Okay, what was the law where you were going? Is that, was it 55 or 30? Um, it's matched by that standard. Um, and then we talked about God's retributive and distributive justice, or um, when God gets a stick out. But sometimes he gets a stick out to whack the person who's holding the person down so he can pull the other person up, right? Or we often in Scripture it's his hand. The hand of God, the back of God's hand to strike the one who is the oppressor and lift up or distribute or restore to the one who has been taken from. So those are some of the things we looked at. We talked about how Israel was supposed to be a different shape. They're not a pyramid like Egypt or like Mesopotamia. They're a different shape of society so that people can see how God is by the way they are, the shape of their society the shape of the people of God, they can see it's a different kind of people so that God can bless through them all people. God blessed Israel and therefore all ethnic groups through them so that they can come and be part of that community, that people of God. Show them a just culture in the Torah, in the law of Mount Sinai, which we've already started exploring. But then we showed how they did become a great nation with justice and a king who was... Caring for justice and make sure the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized were taken care of. And sometimes the king did the right thing, and sometimes he didn't. And then you had prophets who came along and said, Hey, we're not doing what's right. Remember? God says this is right. we got to do this. And they even went to the king and said, Hey, king, look at this. You're over here. And it wasn't easy to be a prophet. For those reasons. It was easy to be a false prophet. Then you're kind of insider. Then you're like, well, let me give you the king's version of things. But the real prophets gave God's version of things, the way God saw things. But they didn't listen. They were judged. They went off Assyria. These are places of judgment of God judging his people. And eventually Jesus came as that justice bringer. Those prophets said, you know what? I know it's bad now. We're even in exile. Justice is not happening. But... Someday God's going to send a real justice bringer, like Moses was. Someday he's going to send a real king, like David was, who will bring justice back. A a son of David will bring it back. A a servant, Isaiah said, a servant of Yahweh, who will will bring what we're missing. And um, by the way, this is done by Andy, who's not here, Andy Mork. And uh, Isaiah 42 talks about the servant of God. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, Nice artwork. 
but uh, that's that servant that's going to bring that. And then Jesus came and fulfilled those expectations for that Messiah who is going to bring justice and righteousness by his life and his death. And he fulfilled the, the new Moses. And he fulfilled the servant that Isaiah was talking about. And then he created this new community of people. So um, we're talking about living justice and righteousness, not only individually, but together as a community. And so I want to go to this uh, video, which will summarize and what we said last time about what justice is and what's, what Scripture says, as well as give you some more. And then I'm going to have you talk to each other about what is justice and righteousness. So figure out who you're going to talk to. Um, we'll, we'll talk about what you think it is, maybe how you think it's messed up. So let's, go, let's play this. Go ahead. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. 
Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Okay. Turn to somebody. You can always look that up on the Bible Project again, and along with their other videos. Um, turn to somebody next to you, and it's a big concept: justice and righteousness. What What do you think it is? Or tell them a story that you think it is. Um, tell one person next to you, or a couple people, and preferably not the person you came with, because you get to talk to them all the way home. So you can move around a little bit.
Okay. Wish I could listen to every one of the conversations and hear what you uh, hear what you all are saying. So I'd invite you to go back and look, and look at the video as well when you get home, because I th- I think it is uh, it's pretty good summary for six minutes of of all of Scripture related to justice, and we're gonna we're gonna have time to spell it out as we go. And of course, its foundation is in the Torah, but. Again, I want to remind us that, you know, this is a little apology again for why we're going, in a positive way, for why we're going into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because all Scripture is breathed out by God. And of course, Paul was telling Timothy this, and what Scripture was he referring to? The Old Testament, the Torah, and the writings, and the prophets. He said all of the Old Testament is profitable. It's all breathed out by God. It's profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, so that you say, you know what? That's not the standard. And for training in what? In righteousness and justice. All of Scripture is profitable for those things. So we need to look at all of Scripture. And tell you what, I grew up as a Pentecostal. It's a Pentecostal church. So Pentecostals aim to be like the early church. <clears throat> That's what we kind of uh, were trying to be. But who did the early church aim to be? Who were they trying to be? Well, the early church knew and obeyed the Bible, so the Old Testament. So they were trying to be what was shown in here as the example that it should be. We should know their Bible if we're going to understand and be like the early church. You can't... I mean, it's like coming to church and hanging out with Christians and trying to figure out what they are without ever reading the Bible. What are they talking about? What was that blood stuff all over there? What is with these people? Right? You need to read what we read if you want to know what Christians are. And you need to read what the early church read to know what's going on with them. And I want to remind you of something we talked about last week. We talked about in at, doing justice, the power of proximity, changing narrative stories and myths, being uncomfortable and keeping hope as ways to seek justice. Um, keep that in mind as we look at what they did in Acts. So Acts 2, and uh, we're going to read a little more than I can put up here. So there's a Bible in front of you if you didn't bring your own. Look at the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So the, the Holy Spirit's come, Peter's given a great sermon, and a whole bunch of people decided to <clears throat> join into this. 3,000 were added to the church. And then it's, Luke gives a little aside and says, and here's what they were doing. And when Luke is giving the aside, you can tell he's trying to give it meaning, explain what's really going on. Um, so it's not just this is what happened, but he's saying it for a reason. He says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Now, what's fellowship? That's one of those Christian words. I don't know. Nobody uses it except Christians. And we're part of the fellowship of Christian assemblies, but what is that? Well, it's actually in Greek, the word is koinonia. And it means a close, mutual relationship and participation in life together. And I want to ask, to what extent do we have a close, mutual relationship and participation in life together? How could we take a step 
toward that as uh, a new family. Because this is about being a family. We say that we're a place where strangers become friends and friends become family. And we admit we're a little bit of a dysfunctional family. We're kind of some weird people. Um, pretty much everybody is. But we, uh, this is a place where we learn from each other and, uh, and our, our differences. So that's what they did, th- those four things. And it goes on and says, A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had because they were a family. They had sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need or they were selling. Um, They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I want you to see that they're creating a different kind of a shape of community that other people are attracted to. A community where God's presence and power is there. A community where people share, where they act like a family. And they eat together. And this kind of a, not just doing your own thing, but they were doing community and life, living justice and righteousness together. Um, So I want us to think about how they walked in God's ways with three E's, okay? Um, Evangelism, which is carried on by the Holy Spirit in witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus in his reopened trial in which God justifies Jesus as the righteous one. There is opposition to this preaching of the resurrection by Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. So this is part of the vertical relationship. So if if we keep reading into chapter 3, we see that Peter and John went to the temple. Now, the temple, what was the temple? The temple was the center of Jewish society. It was the center of religious life. It was the center of economic life and the center of political life. The Sanhedrin, that was their power base. Okay? So it was the, the combination of the cathedral and the capital and Wall Street. All for, the, for that little nation, that's where it was. And so when Jesus walked in there and kicked over tables and said, don't do this, that was, he was messing. In fact, that's part of why he got killed. It's clear. Now, Peter is walking into the temple because they often prayed together in the temple. It was the biggest place. It was also the Mall of America for the city, the biggest open spot where you could get together. Um, So, and as they're walking in, they see a a layman, verse 4, and he asked them for alms. Now, if you remember, Deuteronomy said there shouldn't be any poor among them. But this guy is asking for, please, give me something to eat. And Peter, in verse 4, says, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Jesus said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. He went walking, leaping, praising God all over the temple. (coughs) Praise God. (coughs) All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized this is the guy who's been laying there for 40 years, they wanted to know what was going on. 
Um, so everyone rushed out, and he was holding on to Peter and John. So Peter saw this opportunity and addressed the crowd. There's the evangelism, all right? What does Peter say? This is, look at verse 12. People of Israel, brothers. <clears throat> He's talking to his family, right? People of Israel. What's so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? Um, there's a lot of preachers I know who would try to make the connection to their own power of godliness. But no, they're not us. For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors. Remember that? So Yahweh introduced himself to Moses. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's taking them back all the way to the Torah. The God of our ancestors brought glory to his servant, Jesus, by doing this. Remember we talked about they were, in Isaiah, he talked about this servant that's going to come and bring justice. His servant, Jesus, he's brought glory to his servant. That's in Matt, he's referring to Isaiah 53. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy and righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this fact. So what I want you to see is that Peter is reopening the trial. He says this was a mistrial. You guys had false witnesses and I also chickened out and didn't show up for my witness is what Peter could have said. But um, you had false witnesses who said that, Peter, that Jesus was wrong, but by this man's healing, and especially by the resurrection, God has said he has justified him as the righteous one. So let, let's look back to where he's referring to. Um, a number of places, like Deuteronomy 17 says, but ne never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. There must be, always be two or three witnesses. Peter's saying... I'm a witness that the resurrection happened and God said he's righteous. He's innocent. So he's reopened the trial of Jesus. And he says, and he refers back to Isaiah 53, which again goes to Deuteronomy 25. So at the bottom there it says, Deuteronomy 25, the judges are going to justify the righteous and condemn the guilty. And Isaiah picks that up, but it says, It was the Lord's good plan about the servant to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. So Peter is saying, No, you convicted him, but I'm coming as a witness. Now, we forget the courtroom, the justice analogy here, and we make witness into my story about how I got saved. But no, this is a witness about who Jesus is. Based on the resurrection, based on what he's done, and, and saying Jesus is the righteous one, the one who Isaiah talked about, the servant that was anticipated. Verse 16, Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, brothers, family, 
I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. We're in verse 18 now. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Then times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, when God's going to make it all just and righteous, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the verses up there, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. That's in Deuteronomy. And then, Mo and then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to the prophet will be completely cut off from the people of Israel. So he is warning that you need to listen to this prophet, Deuteronomy, or, or be cut off. That's a quote from Leviticus. So he knows his Bible. And so do they. That's why he keeps referring to it. But remember that Moses was a justice bringer. He declared God's retributive justice against the oppressors, the back of his hand striking Egypt, his restorative or distributive justice lifting up the Israelites. He also declared the, the standard of the law, of what it's supposed to be, and the, the conduct that they should have to that law and the, the justice that should happen. So Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Now, maybe that's, there's a string of prophets like Moses, which Jesus is the culmination of, but he is the, fulfillment, the final fulfillment of that prophet that Moses said is going to be like me. And you should listen to him, not to diviners and others. In, Mo, in Deuteronomy 18, it says, listen to that one. And listen doesn't just mean listen. It means obey, pay attention, do it. So he's saying do it or else you're not going to be part of the people of God anymore. He says, starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham... Through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. You guys heard that one before? You happen to mention that a time or two, right? That God had blessed Abraham to be a blessing to all nations, to all peoples. Then God raised up his servant, Jesus. He sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. So they get turned. Peter is telling them what they need to do about Jesus, he's saying that was a mistrial. Let's open the case again, and I want to declare to you as a witness, this one is righteous. In fact, he's the righteous servant. He's the prophet like Moses. And Peter's doing what? He's doing evangelism, bringing, euangelion is the Greek, bringing good news. He's bringing good news that, well, it's kind of good news. Starts with, you killed the wrong person. That's not good news. But you can repent and be included in the life and, and, and be forgiven from your sins. That is good news. So um, then I'm going to go on. Peter goes and uh, well, what happens? While Peter and John were speaking to the priest, this is to the people. This is chapter 4, verse 1. They were confronted by the priests. 
the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them and put them in jail um, until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it so that the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So then the next day they get called into court. So we're back to the justice stuff. These guys don't like them reopening the case and saying this was a mistrial and you... Leaders killed the wrong person. So they try to shut them up. Hey, don't talk about that anymore. Don't, don't t- talk about that. And, the, and Peter gets really bold, which he wasn't before, and says, am I supposed to obey you or God? Because God reopened this trial. And God's the one who said he's a righteous one. So we have this forensic piece of justice going on that... Uh, has been happening. So now, <clears throat> remember in that thing we stuck with Brian Stevenson, sometimes it gets uncomfortable? The truth is, if you're going to do things to bring justice, to bring righteousness, it's going to get uncomfortable. Even if you think everybody's going to like you, they won't. Because there's some people with vested interests who don't like you messing with their power and their place and their privileges. Uh, or even maybe your power, place, and privileges. But, so they <laughs> get very upset with them. They decide not to kill them. They let them go. And the believers pray a, a prayer that's not, oh God, protect us, they're after us. But God, give us courage. You said this was going to happen. Remember in the Brian Stevens said, it says things get uncomfortable when we try to change the narrative, change the story. Peter's changing the story. It's getting uncomfortable. Um, So they respond and they pray. They say, give us boldness. And I want you to see something else that happens here. This is coming up. The economic shape of the early church was different. We already talked about that, but let's go on to, this is the, the next part, Acts 31. After this prayer, the meeting place shook. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. All the believers were united in heart and mind and savings account. It kind of says that. United in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So now, um, what's, what's happening here is not that Everybody sells everything and they have to have it all together because it says from time to time, basically they had a commitment that there's going to be no needy people among us. And there are some widows, there are some orphans, there are some people who came from someplace else and came here for the temple and then they got saved and they don't, they don't have any land here and, and we're going to make sure that there's nobody hungry. And so we are going to do that to the point of not just giving what's in our wallet but selling our house giving up our savings so that we make sure there's nobody below. 
Nobody who's hungry, that doesn't mean they were all equal. It means that they made sure nobody fell off the edge in this community. And Peter, or Luke, is quoting Deuteronomy because that's exactly what was supposed to happen with the Israelites. Deuteronomy 15, at the end of every seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. Cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They didn't have to do this to others, but to fellow Israelites. Why? We're a family. Right? It gets weird in a family when a brother owes a brother, and then he starts charging interest, and he says, you can't come in the house until you pay that off. And think, I mean, they're family. So Israelites are supposed to be family so that, yeah, you're going to give a loan, but after seven years, you're going to cancel it, and there should be no poor among you. For Yahweh our God will greatly bless you in the land he's giving you as a special possession. You will receive his blessings if you are careful to obey all the commands Yahweh your God of Yahweh your God that I'm giving you today. So you see, they had this way of doing things then, canceling debts, um, the, the letting slaves who were fellow Israelites free. There was a way that God designed for the Israelites to make sure that nobody fell off the edge. Um, sometimes I uh, illustrate this by playing Monopoly. And uh, play Monopoly, and then I say, okay, now, I'm going to change the rules. And the point of the, of the rules now is make sure nobody loses. Um, and it gets uncomfortable. And then it, if it gets really uncomfortable, I set things up the way the world really is. One person gets three sides of the board, and all the other players get one side right after goal. And you got hotels on all of those. And now I say, make sure nobody loses. Guess what? And I say, you can't just bail them out at the last minute. No, not just charity. Nobody ever gets it. Because you know why? You have to do one of two things. You have to change the rules, or you have to give away property. Nobody wants to give away property. They're like, here, I'll give you 500 bucks. Don't, yeah, I can help you pay that. Nobody wants to give up their hotel. In, act, in actual fact, I, I saw in the Toy Museum in Rochester, New York, that Monopoly was designed as a teaching illustration about how bad landlords are. But it was so fun to be the landlord that everybody played it as a game. But it's not so fun when you actually are bankrupt and get kicked out on the street. Is it? No. So... God had designed a Monopoly game that was different than all the other Monopoly games. He said, when you get into land, I'm going to give everybody equal portions. And every seven turns, I'm going to give it back to the original families. And they had designed a way to play Monopoly where nobody lost. Does that sound like fun? Some of you are going, ah, what's the point then? Um, well, maybe the point is to have fun as a family. Um, sometimes at the end of Monopoly, not everybody's happy. Um, so when it's real and not just a game, it's not always so fun. So what was happening was people were so committed that nobody was going to be hungry that they did whatever it took, changed the rules, 
give away houses, whatever. And they brought it to the apostles' feet so that the apostles could distribute it so that nobody would know who gave it so that they wouldn't be tempted to go, hey, you know, I, I, I need some more, right? So it was, it was all distributed through, through the, this community, this new family, so that everybody was okay. They had a different economic shape, and it was the economic shape that was supposed to be in the first place. But they did it a different way. You notice that? It wasn't the seven years and, the, and so forth. It was a different way in a different time. So, economic shape of the early church was different, so that there was no needy. There was also an ethnic shape of the early church that was different. Um, so, things get interesting from here. Um, so, just when you think the early church is perfect, then you get to chapter 5, and Ananias and Sapphira are like, you know, I'd like to get credit for giving stuff away. Let me give some stuff away. And can you put my name on the plaque? They put their name on the plaque. We gave everything. But we didn't. And God, the back of his hand, comes through Peter and kills Ananias and Sapphira. This economic justice or lying or something is really serious to God. In fact, the other time it happens in the New Testament is when it, Paul says some of you are coming together and some people go hungry and other people eat and that's why some of you are sick and die because you're not eating together so that everybody is full. And it's a big deal, but see, they were a different kind of people. I think I've told you this before, but I had two of my students go. A Nigerian talked to people in Kenya who were, had been... Christians but became Muslims. And an Ethiopian went to a bunch of former Muslims who had become Christians. They asked them, why did you convert? The answers were the same. Very similar. Number one was what? These people are more loving. So in Kenya they said, well, you know, the Christians are all divided by tribe and ethnicity and rich and poor and denominations, and, but we are one Ummah, we are one people as Muslims. In Ethiopia, it was the opposite. What happens to our mission when we are that, when we are more loving? When people worry about Islam and Muslims, I always say, let's outlove them. It's not a problem. Let's outlove them. Can we do that? We, we have every resource to do it because we trust God that we can. So, but it makes a difference in our witness how we live with each other. Verse chapter 6, it goes on. In fact, let me just show you kind of the outline of Acts here with this in mind. Foundation of Christian Church and its mission. Part 1, the Christian mission to the Jewish world. It starts with this evangelism and opposition to that and the economic shape. And then it gets into crossing ethnic boundaries. And uh, so... Here's where the economic and the ethnic ran into each other. The Greek-speaking widows said, Hey, we're not getting fed enough. All that money's going to the apostles, but it's all going to the Hebrew-speaking people. Because those apostles, you know, they're all Hebrew-speaking people. They all came from Galilee. They're not from the diaspora. 
And actually, this was a really tense cultural thing because when the Greeks came in, they tried to force everybody to be Greek, do Greek things, Greek ways, speak Greek, and some people did more of that and some people resisted it. So now some people are saying, well, those Greek speakers, they're sellouts. They're not real Jews. They're... And, and those people who've been living elsewhere are like, no, we're... there's tensions because they're different. They speak different languages. And then they end up with different amounts of, of... Some people are hungry. What did the apostles do? They said, okay, so the Greek speakers are unhappy. Let's give all the money to seven Greek speakers. And they can distribute it. They can handle that. We'll continue to focus on the Word of God and prayer. Notice they didn't do like, we'll have three of them and four of those. And who gets four and who gets three? No, they gave the Greek speakers all of it. Are you getting me? So I can always illustrate this in Kenya with Kikuyus and Luos. But here we might have some other ones. You know, maybe there's some darker people and some lighter people or some people who speak English and some people who don't speak English or some people who, who are different somehow or live in this neighborhood or that neighborhood or in the city or in the suburbs or something. And we say, these people are going to have all the money because they seem to be having some difficulties. And we're going to trust God to take care of it. Um, that is not normal. Right? It's not normal. Because we all want to have our party represented at the purse table. Um, but this is where the ethnic boundaries start to blur. And then they go to Samaritans. And Samaritans also speak in tongues. And so one of the things I didn't realize growing up Pentecostal, I thought that was just about a sign that you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. But this is a big thing that, you know what? God speaks every language. And God shows that by blessing the Samaritans with speaking in tongues. And then he does a really nasty thing. He goes to the Gentiles. Cornelius, who's a general of the colonizers who've been pressing down the Israelites. And boy, God has to like take Peter by the neck and drag him over there. Show him this vision. Say, you go with these people. He finally goes there. He preaches you know, I don't know why I'm here, but I, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. We don't eat with you people. We don't sleep by you people. We don't go in your houses. But God brought me here. Real reluctantly, he preaches this thing. And then um, something happens. Cornelius says this. And Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, every ethnic group, every language, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Fear him and do what is right. This was a mind blower for Peter. Because he knew we Pentecostals are more holy than other people. Or we Americans are better than those people. Or we, um, whatever, are better somehow. In fact, when he got back home, they didn't ask him questions about theology. They said, you ate with those people? You stayed overnight? What were you thinking? Because the law had 
made this clear distinction to remind them that they were holy and that they were separate. But God changed that to show that God... He, well, actually, Peter's quoting Deuteronomy 10. This was, For the Lord your God shows no partiality, no favoritism, and cannot be bribed. He is the just judge. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice, our restorative justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners. For you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You know what? We got big shoes. We got to keep up with God. He's showing love to widows, orphans, foreigners, marginalized people, single mothers, whoever the people are who are on the edge. He is reaching out to them without showing partiality. This isn't that easy, you know? Theoretically, it sounds good. But it's hard not to kind of rank people and say people who go to church more are better. People who somehow, they're, that there's some kind of partiality. So I want to remind you that the new people of God, so what were the three E's? Anybody remember? Evangelism, economic shape, and ethnic shape. So um, God shows no favoritism. So here's the thing. Those go together. But most of us don't really like to put them together. Right? Some of us are big on evangelism. Oh, yeah, we got to give evangelism. we got to get out there and share Jesus and do it. And, and other people are like, you know, at my college I can talk about justice, but I can't talk about evangelism. can't talk about who Jesus is. And other people, so some of us love the justice part because that goes good. Some of us love the evangelism part. But you know what? It goes together. And when we do justice, live righteously, live with each other like family, that is really powerful evangelism. It is. When we don't, it's really hard to get over. Martin Luther King had a problem. His problem was the Christians were in charge of the segregation. And they thought it was Christian. Right? Uh, and before that, it was um, slavery, and, and it hasn't changed. Look at who's in jail. There's still a lot of issues around racism. And when the church was part of slavery, part of segregation, it was really hard to get people to like it. You know, at first, people didn't even want to share the gospel with the slaves because they were like, but if they get saved, then we might have to do like Philemon and, and let them go. And so some of the evangelists said, no, no, no. It doesn't have anything to do with that. We're just going to share the gospel with them. It won't have any effect. And you know what? It didn't have any effect. The slaves could care less. Until they started reading the Bible themselves. They started reading Exodus and like, wow, this is good stuff. And they got saved. 
And there's still a pretty big divide a lot of places between how African-American churches see things and how white churches see things. That's why we don't know how to see things sometimes here. Because we're a little confused. And I think a little cool. Because I think we're getting some of the ethnic piece, some of the economic piece, and some of the evangelism piece. And I'm excited about that. And it all has to go together. We aren't going to have justice without Jesus. We aren't going to have righteousness without justice and without Jesus. And we can't do it, but God can. He did it for them. Even the messy stuff, even as bigoted as those people were, God did something amazing. And God is doing something amazing with us. So how do we do it now? I want you to see that the new people of God here, they were fulfilling the original intention of a just and righteous family. That they considered everyone brothers. They were, but they used different mechanisms. We don't see them doing like every seven years we're going to cancel debts or we're going we're to sell the land and give it back. They did something different. They came up with a new way to do it. And then along the way they changed it. They said, let's have deacons because this isn't working. In Tanzania, I would often ask my students, I said, how many of you have deacons in your church? And, you know, most of them did. I said, how many of you have a, a program for taking care of widows or orphans in your church? Now they're getting better at that. I'm proud to say, or not proud, but I'm glad for them, that they're getting better at having it because the deacons were just something they invented to make sure that widows and orphans and the marginal were taken care of. It, sometimes we follow the product of what Acts says without the process and the point of what the early church did. So they used different mechanisms. What are the mechanisms now? Now, Chris Vanderkoy, I think, is here, and he'd say, we have to make sure we don't have any debt. We don't take any debt. We don't give any debt. Right, Chris? We're still having that discussion. You can have that discussion with him. He's, he's back in Deuteronomy. He thinks we should do that. He's got a point. It's going to be radical, actually. It seems it's going to be moving some direction. We can't, you can't just do like the rest of the world does and expect it different results, right? Um, and you've got to trust Jesus, don't you? That you're actually depending on Jesus. Um, how can God fulfill his original intention today with us in St. Paul and beyond? Because you know our family is beyond St. Paul? Family's beyond America? We've got family a lot of places, and it's really cool. But when you're in Tanzania and they're knocking on your door every day and asking for something, it's not always comfortable. It's cool, but it's not always comfortable. Um, it's cool to have the relationships now and to know who to trust and to be able to help people in some cool ways, but it's not always comfortable. But it's cool that we have family everywhere and that we can make them all part of us. So my brother-in-law likes to say, okay, how, how, how? And people say, well, let's do this. And he says, well, how are you going to do that? So I don't know, but let's take a few shots. First of all, we're going to have to increase trust in Jesus and each other. Right? 
How are we, how are we going to increase trust in Jesus and each other? That's the next question, right? You say, well, how are you going to do that? Um, well, we need to witness to who Jesus is, that he's just, that he's right. You know, people don't believe that necessarily. They believe that Jesus is maybe not even existent or maybe he was a nice guy or maybe, but that he's resurrected, that he's the judge, that he's coming back, that he's, yeah, not really. You know, maybe a love song to Jesus, but not that he's really here, that he's right, that the church is his way of doing things. That's radical now. We have a new extended family. For us, this is actually our family. If you think about it scripturally, this is our family. God also gives us other families, individual families. We have small families within this family. But really, this is our family. Eternally, this is the family we're going to be with. Marriage doesn't necessarily last. But this family lasts forever. If you just think that, if you just act this way, that will radically change your life. If you eat with this family, if you share with this family, if you get to know this family, that will be revolutionary. And I want to encourage you to do that. So listen and obey Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. We got to do that. Because if you're not devoting yourself to this, but you're devoting yourself to the evening news or to the whatever else you're, you're, you're feeding on, you're not going to get God's way of justice and righteousness. You might get upset about something and wish there was justice, or you might, whatever, you might get mad about those people or whatever, but you're not going to find it without the standard. A totally different way and a totally different power to do it. And prayer. We've got to hear from God. And we've got to ask God to... And we've got to give Him permission to mess with us if we're going to move into what He wants for us. Um, share meals. Real practical. Invite somebody over. Well, if this is Africa, I'd say just go show up at their house. That's the way you do it in Africa. Um, and they should invite you in. Um, but probably here you need to make an appointment. Share a meal. Share some tea. Um, go out. Have somebody over uh, after church today. Say, hey, you want to go do something? Um, sharing meals, sharing time. Because when you get to know somebody, when you visit their house, when you, it, it gets easier to be like, oh, you know, I care about them. Well, this situation is going on. Let, let me pray with you about that. And well, how, how can I help? Right? Things change when you actually get to know each other. If we're just here Sunday morning and we just kind of you know, join a small group. There's one opening up January. There's other ones available. Um, find ways. Now, you don't have to, we can't all be together all the time at everybody's house, but you can be with some people, right? Share meals. It's real simple, but it's real powerful. Live koinonia. A close, mutual relationship and participation in life together. So 2019 is the year of living justice and righteousness. How? I don't know exactly. <laughs> I gave you some clues. We're going to go through Scripture. We're going to find out some more. Think about one thing you could do. Maybe just 
read scripture a little more or have somebody over. Um, I want you also to give God permission. Can you give God permission to mess with your life? With your friendships? With your wallet? God, does God have that permission? That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Do you trust him? We trusted Pastor. We just don't trust you. We don't know where you're going. Right? Well, I'm trying to go here. I'm trying to follow the big steps. <laughs> and if I get it wrong, you know, show me. Let's talk about it. Show me how. And honestly, I'm scared too. <laughs> Those are big steps. Uh, I don't know exactly what he's going to demand. One thing I do know is in the 50 years I've followed him, he's always been good. And everything I've given up, he's given back in spades or 10 or 100 times. God's good. He's got good plants. And when he gives 10 commandments, it's a bill of rights so that you can rest. So that, you know, we, his law is good. He wants us to have a good life together. Let's pray about that. Lord, and could the worship team come? Lord, we admit that we are, um, we're not sure how this goes, and we're a little protective of, well, some things that we trust and some things that are happening. We're not quite sure where you're going. But Lord, I pray that you'd increase our trust. I pray that you'd help us to trust you so we can speak out and say who you are and witness to your greatness, your righteousness, your justice with our words, with our actions, with our community, with the way we relate to each other. Lord, we, we don't know how to put this all together. It's kind of scary to think about having to say stuff or give stuff or do stuff. But we want to say yes to you. Because you are worthy. You are worthy of our trust. You're worthy of our possessions and our family. You want to bless us. You want to make us a blessing. We trust you. We, we know that you're going to take us to good places. To that place that you have. And Lord, we, we admit that our resources are not enough. So when we start thinking about meeting all the needs or relating to all the people, all kinds of people, we think, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I can't do that. I can't. And I share with that person. I can't say anything to them. What will they think? That's why we trust your Holy Spirit. Because your Holy Spirit made this church do what had always been your intention and get through the bumps and the difficulties and Lord we are grateful for what you have done in our hearts in our lives and in our community we ask that you would do your work in your church this church and around the world 
So Lord, we trust you and we surrender. We surrender all. We say we will obey whatever you say. We want to listen to Jesus, a prophet like Moses, and do what he says, because we want to be part of this people. Amen. So we're going to sing. Um, well, it's a little late. They, they might be ready for, the, for you with the kids. So I'm going to give a benediction, but then I'd like you to stay around and sing this um, faith song as a we. Okay, so let's do the we version of that. But let me give a benediction. Stand up. Go in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father who gave you everything. Jesus, who's the justice bringer that is the righteous one who can show you how, and the Holy Spirit who can empower you to do what you can't do. Go and be a blessing in his name.